morning, everyone. This morning, as we alluded to last week, we'll be back in our series on 1 John. Excited to be back in this book. Let me say one thing up front, and I'll send out an email with more information preceding for next Sunday, but we will take a pause from 1 John again for next Sunday, but it's for a very specific reason. And I'll just say up front right now, and I'll send out the message again as I just stated, but uh, to make you aware of something that is taking place in, in the nation of Canada right now, um, I will be attending in March the Shepherds Conference out in Los Angeles, California with John MacArthur's ministry. And what is going on in Canada right now is extremely, um, how can I say, discouraging, as it's right on our border. Uh, they have just passed a bill that will, in essence, um, communicate that any type of counseling or preaching or teaching uh, on biblical sexuality will be labeled as hate speech. Um, and John MacArthur is very connected with James Coates, who preaches out of Canada. And many Canadian brothers are going to be standing on January 16th and preaching boldly on biblical sexuality. And MacArthur has uh, sent a message to all the pastors that will be attending the Shepherds Conference that if we would stand with our Canadian brothers to speak on biblical sexuality, which will be, in essence, three or four days after the law was passed in Canada. So I hope to bring a message that will be encouraging to you, edifying to you, but also one that, as we talked about in our series on Malachi, a shepherd's role is also to protect the flock as well. So we need to be prepared. This is in Canada. It's not in the United States, but let's not be naive to what could potentially be right here in our backyard. So I'll stand boldly with those Canadian brothers um, and many men across the world, really, not just the United States, teaching and preaching on biblical sexuality next week. And then we'll return to our series in 1 John. But for today, an exciting passage for us to unpack. If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 3, the title of our message is Love one another. Now, if you recall, two weeks ago we discussed what a contradiction of faith looks like. As we've seen throughout, the Spirit of God is certainly conveying the significance of identifying imposters, the absolute importance of discernment concerning the darkness and the light goes without being said. What's more, we've also seen that John, throughout this letter, masterfully intertwines encouragement from a positive perspective as well. We've seen him speak in bold, black and white, direct communication that at times is very challenging and can be seen in somewhat of a negative light. But as a good pastor, he always communicates too as well within that flow of thought from a positive perspective as well. In our passage today, it's the positive perspective of biblical love that leads the way. To be specific, biblical love of one another. Now, 
you might have seen or noticed that I've used the adjective biblical before love several times now here. That is intentional. There's no debating. The world, on some level, can manifest what looks like biblical love. It's the common grace of God that even allows for this to be the case. That said, though, love from a worldly perspective is typically held hostage to momentary emotions of the heart. To use John's language, as we examined several weeks ago, it originates in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. As for believers, this is why we cling to that command that John communicated in chapter 2 when he said, do not love the world or the things of the world. What's more, this is why we as believers pursue true biblical love. Is this not what we saw in our introductory message as one of the three major themes for assurance that John wants to communicate in this letter. We talked about a proper belief, a willful obedience, and then a selfless love. Three main components throughout the letter as a whole that encompass this message that he intends to communicate to the churches of Asia Minor in order to encourage them to build them up in order that they might know that they have eternal life. That said, when it comes to selfless, biblical love, Christ is the pinnacle example. Moreover, as children of God, we too are characterized by biblical love. As a matter of fact, John demonstrates this with the theme of our passage for this morning. We could call it the children of God practice biblical love. You know what? From a pastoral perspective, this church, I can tell you, in many respects, generally and also specifically, I've seen it time and time again, week after week, are living examples of practicing biblical, selfless love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Believers practice biblical love. His word abides in us, not to mention the person of the Spirit himself indwells those of us that are in Christ. We can't help but practice biblical love. Notwithstanding, if you're like me, all of us at times understand and feel the weight of missing the mark, falling short in our desire or our practice of biblical love. That said, would we be also characterized not just by biblical love, but by repentance? 
a repentance that would create in us a hunger and a desire to overcome those moments of failure. In this passage today, we're going to look at three certainties surrounding biblical love. Three certainties that will help us answer the question, how do we practice biblical love? Very simple question, but profound indeed for every believer in Christ. We desire to do this. We will do it because his word and his spirit abides in us. But how might we, by God's grace, overcome those moments of missing the mark? That will be our endeavor here today. With that said, would you stand with me as we read our passage? From 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. This is the word of God, the living and authoritative, inerrant and inspired word. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. Our first certainty this morning is number one, love is vertical. And we'll see this in verses 11 and 12. And before John gets to the vertical example, he connects verse 11 with his previous thoughts from chapter 2. Now look back at chapter 2, verse 7. And then we'll look at verse 10 as we consider what we just read from verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 7 reads, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. And what is that word? Look down at verse 10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. Now, from the beginning of their salvation experience, they had heard about the importance of love for one another. The same could be said for each and every one of us when coming to 
a saving relationship with Christ. All of us hide near and dear in our heart that great passage from Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates his love toward us in yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Love is the centerpiece of the gospel. That said, along with salvation, we also became aware of a new creation that was birthed in us. A new heart that enabled us to even understand love on a different level. We alluded to it in the introduction that the world sees love from a momentary emotional perspective. Or from the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the boastful pride of life. As born again believers in Christ, we know love on a much deeper level. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 34, we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Biblical love is self-sacrificial and so much more than fleeting emotions. It's a love that chooses to objectively persevere. It's a love that's willing to sacrifice, not just for those whom we love, but also for our enemies. It's a love that first, vertically, looks to Christ and his commandments revealed now for us in the church age in the 66 books of the Bible. That's the power behind this first certainty. A love that vertically looks to Christ first and foremost. Now, even though we understand these concepts at times, and I've mentioned this several times already, we all fall short. That said, how can we overcome these failures? How can we practice more biblical love? In verse 12, John provides a perfect illustration and answer from the book of Genesis. Two weeks ago, we saw how John referenced Genesis in verse 8. He continues to do so here in verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So, of course, we can't ignore John's reference to Cain and his description of one that flows forth from the evil one. To use John's context, we could say that he is a child of the devil. We could certainly say, don't be like Cain. He didn't love his brother. He actually slaughtered him. And that's really the understanding from the original language in this communication here. Nevertheless, 
by using the negative example of Cain? Was John's original intention more concerned with the contrast? Alluding more to Abel's example. One in which they would have been certainly familiar with. One in which we are familiar with. If that's the case, and I believe it is, we need to take a look at Genesis chapter 4 for some perspective. Turn back as you keep your hand in 1 John to Genesis chapter 4 as we consider what John is alluding to here concerning Cain and Abel. What was right about Abel? And how does this certainty, love is vertical, come into play? I'll read verses 4 through 7 of Genesis chapter 4. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us everything about why God only chose to give favor to Abel's sacrifice. Be that as it may, we have several clues from this passage, along with the book of Hebrews, that shines a brighter light on John's meaning, as we just read. First off, we know that Abel offered of his flock the firstborn. We know from the writer of Hebrews, you don't need to turn there, you can make a note and reference it later, Hebrews 11.4, that Abel's offering was of faith. And then from what we just read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, we know that Cain's angry countenance stemmed from his lack of obedience. God said to him, if you do well, you have no need, paraphrasing here, to be angry. So, what might we conclude? Cain's jealousy and lack of love for his brother was certainly a fruit of his horizontal focus. In contrast, Abel was vertically focused in faith. Abel desired, first and foremost, to please Yahweh. To be obedient in the offering of his firstborn. To make his offering in faith. Think about this, practically speaking, for us all. How many of us at times are too focused upon men? as opposed to God, horizontally, as as opposed to vertical. He or she insulted me. I don't like 
his style. I really don't connect with his or her personality. Each of these types of concentrations obviously don't help us in our desire to love one another. When our focus is too horizontal as compared to first and foremost vertical. What if, by God's grace, each and every day, first and foremost, we desired to offer vertically unto God our bodies as a living sacrifice, vertically speaking, if you will. How would that help us in our desire to overlook the distractions and the issues and the troubles that come along with men and women that still wrestle with the flesh? We're in this world together. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We can't allow the pull of the world to distract us from what needs to be our priority. A love that is first and foremost vertical as opposed to horizontal. And as for Cain, this was a part of his downfall. Let's look to Abel's example and then abide in faith as Abel did. Offering our bodies, he offered the firstborn of his flock. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Use me, Lord, to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. In spite of myself. And if we were honest, many times that's what gets in the way. Cain looked at Abel, but yet, how better off would we be when we are understanding that a focus upon the Lord enables us in faith to understand that even in ourselves, it's our sin that gets in the way of our connection and our love of our fellow brothers. We need a faith that reflects a God-centered life. A faith that enables us to love one another, even in the face of conflict. Is this not what Christ did on our behalf? We were enemies with God. And yet, he chose to love us. I promise you, if we prioritize this certainty, love is vertical, we will inevitably Practice more loving of one another. As for the world, this man-centered, horizontal focus is typical. We've all been there, apart from the grace of God. Likewise, it provides much of the background for the second certainty. And that's number two. Love is distinctive. Love is distinctive. We'll see this in verses 13 through 15. Now, if our focus as children of God is primarily vertical as opposed to the world's horizontal, why would we be surprised if the world hates us? In verse 13, John actually commands them 
Don't be surprised if this is the case. True biblical love is at the complete opposite end of the spectrum from what the world has to offer. It's distinctively different. And with that, very much carries animosity towards us at times. John said it as such in his gospel in chapter 15, verse 19. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Look back at our context from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, for even more distinction. Chapter 1, verse 5 of 1 John reads, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What's more? Not only is God light in everything that is true and pure, his children, my brothers and sisters in Christ here, walk in the light, represent everything that is true and pure. And let me give you one more for some correlating context of distinction. Back to John's gospel again, chapter 3, verse 20. We read, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Cain is the perfect example of this. He slaughtered his brother because his deeds were evil, as the text states. Moreover, the light of Abel's deeds was shining a spotlight upon Cain's evil deeds, jealousy, disobedience, all that to say. As God's word commanded them, it commands us here today. Don't marvel or be astonished or amazed or surprised that the world hates you. Your practice of biblical love, which is true and pure, is distinctively different. It's so distinctive that often it will be a threat to the world's guilty conscience. And you know what? That's a good thing. It's because of this threat that God often uses your display of truth and love to soften and challenge hearts. Amen. And that would be a prayer of all of us concerning those in whom we love yet still reject God. What's more? When we come to accept this distinction, 
although at times it produces a sense of loneliness, far more importantly, in our spirit, it affirms and encourages who you are in Christ. Listen to Peter's words in chapter 4, 1 Peter, verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Beloved, when the distinction of biblical love creates a chasm of disdain, for truth and love that at times seems to ostracize you. Don't be discouraged. Don't be surprised. God has chosen you as a bridge of means. One in which the glory of God rests on you. One in which a path exists to bridge the gap of the abyss. And because of that, brother and sister in Christ, you are blessed beyond measure. Even in the midst of a heart at times that feels lonely or separate from the world that we live in. And moreover, and this is another example of your greatest encouragement in Christ concerning this distinctive love. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. 1 John chapter 3, 14 and 15. It reads, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren he who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, John has already laid the groundwork for this connection in chapter 2, of verses 9 and 10. Look back at that. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. As we consider what we just read in chapter 3. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 reads, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So, and we've seen this time and time again throughout this letter. The character of biblical love is an ironclad distinction separating the world from the children of God. Or we might say the children of God from the children of the devil, to use John's context. For us as believers, all of us fully understand this distinction because of our past and former previous life. When we were formerly, as Paul said, children of wrath. 
we can emphatically say, as children of God, that we have passed from death to life. Amen. Eternal life abides in you, brother, in you, sister. We take confidence and courage and assurance in that. We are not murderers at heart. Why? One primary illustration of that truth is because we practice biblical love. And as I stated earlier, I see it time and time again in the dear saints here in this congregation. In John's context, no amount of secret, special, Gnostic knowledge could have ever assured them of the fact that they had passed from death unto life. In contrast, though, the evidence of a regenerated heart that used to be stone turned to flesh most certainly assured these believers and assures you here today brother and sister in Christ who walk in the light, one in which a life could not help but practice selfless, distinctive, biblical love, everything that is true and pure, albeit at times falling short. Moreover, why did they or we know this assurance? It's because the objective and distinctive word of God declares it. And in conjunction with the Spirit himself, testifies in your spirit that this is the case. That the word of God and his spirit abides in you. You practice biblical love. You rest in that assurance. That said, when it comes to this certainty, love is distinctive, how might we apply it in order to practice more of it? Or what if we were to ask the question, what about our love for the church? Do we look deaf different than any other secular dedication? Are our relationships different than the world? Are we at times inclined to show more respect and appreciation for our co-workers than our brothers or sisters in Christ or even those within our homes? And even as I state that, I feel the weight myself individually of missing that mark at times. By God's grace, because our love is distinctive, let us not take for granted our dear brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have passed from death unto life, those in whom we are linked together intimately in biblical, intimate fellowship. What about our love for truth? Do we love the brethren so much 
That we are willing to love them in the midst of conflict. In the face of confrontation. And the final certainty will ultimately find some answers to how we create these distinctions specifically. And that's number three. Love is action. In our final three verses, we'll look again at verse 16. We know love by this. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, whether it's humility, whether it's leadership, whether it's confrontation, whatever it may be in any life skill area, Christ is the ultimate example and model for us. That said, love, of course, is certainly no exception. How do we know what love is? We see it within the verse. He laid down his life for us. And then it goes on to say that we ought to do the same. Follow this example. Walk in the light. Purity, truth, love. That said, what helps us to follow this ultimate example and model of love? One thing is absolutely critical, I believe with all my heart, for us to understand and grasp in regards to following this model. It relates to the nature of Christ's love. Or we might even say the order of sequence. We see this throughout Scripture. But John writes about it quite often. That said, let me share three passages of Scripture that will shine a light upon the nature of Christ's love and in turn will help us to follow the model. Look over at our context in chapter 4, 1 John, verse 10. John writes, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've discussed that term propitiation, the removal of wrath that we deserved. He loved us. We did not love him. Or in John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 16, we read the words of Christ himself. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. 
And then one other, the words of Christ himself, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, this is so vitally important for us to grasp when it comes to how we might love in action. When we get this, we will be forced to drive with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength even more to be a people of love and action. What is it? There was nothing in us as dead sinners worthy of receiving love. What's more, as enemies of God, there was nothing in us looking to or even capable of working with God. What we wanted, apart from the grace of God, was to continually pursue the lusts of our flesh. Our minds were hostile to God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Unwilling to submit. But those two great words. But God. Who is rich in mercy. Based on his sovereign love chose to lay down his life specifically and specially for you. He was and is the perfect advocate for you and I, we who were formerly walking according to the Prince of the power of the air, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. This is who we were. Yet, Christ took the divine initiative to draw you. To draw you when you were utterly unable to remedy your lost condition. How do we lay down our lives, metaphorically speaking, for the brethren, or even literally, if God so willed? We love as Christ loved in action. We take the initiative. We don't wait for someone to love us. We don't initiate love based upon the response that I will get. We take this first step. We love those who maybe even at times are perhaps hard to love. 
It's easy for us to love our best of friends and our closest of brothers and sisters. What if Christ took that approach with us? Can you imagine if as a church we were all trying to initiate love with our brothers and sisters in this manner? What an unbelievable encouragement we would be to one another. What great and mighty things we could do for the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. What's more? And this is massive. Listen to John's words from his gospel in the high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. We read, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Not only is an initiating love and action a tremendous benefit and blessing to the body of Christ, God uses it as a distinctive light of unity and love that serves and operates as a means of an evangelistic appeal to the world. When we love the brethren like Christ loved us. Yes, the world hates us, but you know what? God is still in the business of saving souls and drawing men and women out of the darkened state that they love and desire. And he's using, in many respects, our love for one another as a beacon of light and hope in that appeal. What about some meat behind this idea of love and action? In verses 17 and 18, John begins to provide it. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. But, who, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And let me begin to wrap this up with a couple observations from this text, these two verses, and one final point of application. First off, we can see from John's words here that in some respects he's concerned with material possessions. The verse states, worldly goods. That said, don't allow this to confuse us with the idea that this only pertains to those with wealth. 
the idea or sense is anything of value. What's more, don't miss the significance you'll notice of the singular brother. Within this passage, he's only so far up until this point used the more general or plural term of brethren. Now he switches and says brother. Think about it from this perspective. It's so much easier to love in action, generally speaking, as opposed to individually and specifically a dear brother or a sister. That can get messy. And yet, God's word here is calling us to compassionately love the brother, or might I say, the sister in Christ that is in need. What's more, we don't close our hearts. We open our hearts wide, and we open them with action, not by way of just lip service, but with deeds and work as we desire in the same way to manifest the love of the brethren or specifically a brother or sister in the same way that Christ specifically loved you, not just a potential mass of humanity. Beloved, this is how we practice biblical love. Let us never forget, the foundation is vertical. It will certainly be distinctive, and that's a good thing. And it will inevitably be a love that produces action not just words. All that said, for one final point of application and in light of what we've discussed today, I want us to close with me reading from a well-known passage of Scripture that many of you are familiar with. If we so desire to examine biblical love, love, on a whole nother level, we would take weeks upon each and every one of the characteristics found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of us have, myself included, referred to it as the love chapter. That said, as you listen to these words, listen for the action behind these characteristics of biblical love. Listen closely. And then after I read, we'll close in prayer together, seeking the Holy Spirit that he might prick and move our hearts 
and areas of application concerning love and action. Loving one another. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Pray with me. Holy Spirit. We thank you. That right now as we speak. You empower us, Holy Spirit. You indwell us. You comfort us. You assure us. You testify that eternal life abides in us. Holy Spirit, would you work through us today, each and every day, to be a people of action, not just of words, but of deed and truth. Holy Spirit, would you illumine your word in our lives in order that we might not sin against you? In order that we might love a specific brother, a specific sister. Holy Spirit, I even pray and ask here today that if you might reveal according to your word, perhaps even one today that we need to reconcile with. To be patient with. To bear one another's burdens with. Holy Spirit, would you help us today to remain vertical first and foremost. In our attention. In our focus. In order that we might not grieve you, Holy Spirit. And last, but certainly not least. Oh, Spirit of God, if there be anyone here today who has never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, would you draw them by your divine initiating grace in order that they might come to know and understand the greatest love that mankind will ever know. You laid down your life for your people precious, exalted, risen name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.